This is Proxilla Radio, the UK's first dedicated progressive rock music radio network. You're listening to Tabletop Genesis, a podcast by Genesis fans for Genesis fans. Hi there, this is Mike Lord. This is Tom Roche. And you're listening to Tabletop Genesis. And today we're going to be talking about the fourth Peter Gabriel album, also known as Security in the United States. Not Security in the United States. It's known in the United States as Security. We have a special guest today. We have Adam Cromlow from the Genesis Piano Project. Yay! Hi, hi. Thanks for having me. Adam, this is one of... Without getting into it, would you? Is this your favorite Peter Gabriel album? It's definitely one of my favorite. Okay, so probably depending upon the day, it can shift around. Yes, a bit this could be my favorite. All right, good. So let's say today that it's your favorite Peter Gabriel <laughs> album, and uh, we will be chatting about this. This is actually the first. It feels like it's been a while since we we've just done a classic kind of old school album review and everything we did um testify the phil collins album for another podcast which we kind of frankensteined into one of our own which was great to do with al melchior for his you me and an album podcast we've done some viewer mail we did a tour chat so it's been a while since we just sat down and reviewed an album and we thought this was a good one to get back into that routine right this is nice to do classic tabletop yes album, exactly classic album Classic album, good times, good chats, good talking. So, Tom, do you want to go over the Wikipedia entry for this fine album? Sure. Ironically, it's very short considering what a great album it is. Yeah. Peter Gabriel, 1982 album. Peter Gabriel is the fourth studio album by the English rock musician Peter Gabriel. In the United States and Canada, the album was released by Geffen Records with the title Security. A German-language version, entitled Deutsches Album, German Album, was also released. The album saw Gabriel expanding on the post-punk and world music influences from his 1980 self-titled record and earned him his first U.S. Top 40 single with Shock the Monkey. Shock the Monkey, indeed. Adam, do you remember your first interaction with this album, or when you first became aware of it? Yeah, I... So my first... Peter Gabriel experience was seeing his growing up tour. I was uh, 13 years old, I think. And that was the first time I heard Shock the Monkey and a lot of these songs. Okay. So it was kind of after that, I went back and started to dig into his catalog. I even think I heard plays live before this too. So I knew the live versions better than the studio versions, but I was probably in high school when I started listening to Security and by now, I've played it through so many times that, for me, these versions are the, the definitive versions. Excellent. Tom, how about you? What was your interaction with this album? It was very similar. I wasn't really aware of Peter Gabriel. Funny, even not even on the radio, when in the early 80s or some of the Shock the Monkey, I didn't have MTV. So I didn't really know of Gabriel's work until so in 86. And kind of like I did with Genesis and Invisible Touch, where that became 
huge with me. And then I went back to their whole catalog. I did the same with Peter Gabriel when So came out. And I think we've talked about how when So came out, I didn't even know Peter Gabriel had been in Genesis. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I quickly found that out as I was exploring Genesis. But I went back through Peter's stuff and I might have gotten plays live uh, because I liked how live albums would usually cover some of the more popular tunes that this artist had in the past. And that was an easy way to go back and kind of get my feet wet into some of their prior work. So I must have gotten plays live first and then at one point security. So a lot of the songs on this album, I more closely associate with the plays live versions, but it was great to hear the studio versions because they're just, they're, they're different. It's, I wouldn't say one is better, but there's like an energy and excitement when you hear the live versions, but then there's just that all that different tracks in the background and different things you can hear and different sounds that you hear on the studio versions, which are, which are also fantastic. Yeah. I definitely had growing up as a child of privilege in the suburbs. I did have MTV and, <laughs> and I remember shot the monkey all the time because it was, it was a great song and the video was again, Peter Gabriel with, you know, weird makeup on and stuff like that. Some screaming monkeys here and there. And it was just like, it was, it was a lot of fun for, you know, 82, 83, 84, when that came out. I don't remember any other Peter Gabriel videos. And I certainly, I wasn't buying a lot of albums at the time because I was still pretty young. But I, I remember liking the song, maybe laughing about it a little bit because Shot the Monty. What is Shot the Monty? What does that even mean type of thing? But it was, but it was fun. And then... Like you guys, I may have gotten plays live first. Again, that's it gets nebulous exactly when when I might have gotten that versus you know Peter Gabriel Four, Security, and some of the other albums. Because just of having so many different live versions of this in my kind of you know computer MP3 collection, going back and listening to this album and really digging into these album tracks was like, oh, this is a weird album. Like, and as much as I knew it was a weird album going into it, it was like, I didn't quite remember how weird some of the arrangements and some of the production choices were in a good way. I'm not saying this is bad. It's just like, it was surprising to me because you kind of get different versions when it's live that make things sound a bit more like songs. And these sounded like constructions in some ways to me. Again, in ways I really liked, but it was it was a bit less organic than live versions are for me. So yeah, so that's kind of my general impression of this so far. It did strike me looking, you know, listening to this album and thinking, all right, this came out in 1982, and you listen to the different soundscapes there are and how he was exploring world rhythms and that type of thing and some of the lyrics, just the, the poetic quality of them, the, the way that he's putting words together. And this was 1982. And you think about some of the other music that was coming out that time. You have like Let's Get Physical by Olivia Newton-John and yep. <laughs> Abracadabra by the Steve Miller. Like, I don't know why those two songs from 82 popped into my head first when I thought of comparing this to what is what was out at the time. But this was this was a heavy lift if you wanted to explore an album like this. Like this isn't the pop stuff that you're oh, yeah. hearing on the radio uh, with a simple backbeat. This was like you needed to sit down with this and, and listen to it many times and explore it to kind of appreciate what 
he was delivering. Well, I, 82 was the year of the first Asia album with Heat of the Moment, <laughs> Only Time Will Tell. And I'm like, I, I really enjoy that album, too. But but these are very different beasts from 82. Yeah, yeah there's such careful production and sound design on this record. I think even more than his previous ones. Yeah. And I think here it's done the best that he had done it yet. Mm-hmm. And so there's like this theatrical quality to the record that I think is really cool. But the sound design, some of it feels 80s and dated, but then some of it I feel like would work if this album came out this year. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing that stuck out most to me on this last listen that I just did was how he used like Foley and objects and things to, uh, and then treated them in certain ways that really feel unique and current and have this character that is everlasting. Yeah, I, I feel like every instrument on this album was made not to sound like itself. Yes. And which was which was a good choice because they all work in general with that. There was such production and such caretaking with it that it worked in a lot of ways. Post-punk is one of those descriptors that I was always like, what does that really even mean other than it's after the late 70s? You know, pretty much everything at that point is post-punk. Is it really, I'm sure that some people say, oh, it's a, it's a specific sound or genre of things. And I'm just like, it just seems so broad as to be meaningless to me at that point. This, this I think, feels more under the post-ragtime. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, post-big band, perhaps, you know, that's more, you know, pre-Nirvana. Pre, uh, let's, uh, let's do it that way. This so. was the post-sticks-on-rocks era that the ancestors used. Exactly. Yeah. So, so anyway, that's, that's just my, yeah, I, I think this is, I'll put my cards on the table and say, I, after listening to it, I was like this again, big surprise here. This is a great album and oh, I, I really liked it, but kind of what we were saying before about live versions and plays live and everything. In some ways, I'm so used to the live versions of this, of the tracks on this album that it was a surprise sitting down and listening to this from beginning to end and being like, oh, this this sounds weird. And again, it's Peter Gabriel kind of expect there to be a certain level of weirdness or oddity to it. But just some of the choices made in kind of processing every track in different ways, every instrument sounding a little bit off from things from its from its norm really hit me in a good way when I was listening to this. Yeah, I agree. All right. Uh, Let's move on to... So we're going to dive into the first song on this album, the classic Rhythm of the Heat. It feeds on the blood, 
Here, this is almost like a kind of a progression from his third album. I think the first two I always felt of his albums were kind of like getting his feet wet, trying different things. Three, he really latched on to something, and I think he elevated it with this album. So you have a great opener with Intruder on the third album, and this album, he's kind of got that same, like this constant heart beating with that, you know, the, the, the breath through the whistle, or I forget whatever's making that kind of sound. And then he has the, the heartbeat. And then when he comes in with that scream, it's just. Ah. <laughs> it's just that was great. Can you do and that again? Just, ah. <laughs> Thanks. It's that ominous opening where it just, it, it's hard to match any song with what he does with the rhythm of the heat, just from the beginning all the way through the end, the, the buildup. I think there's that little bit of whispers in the middle. Yeah. It's just, it's just a genius track. I think start to finish. Yeah. This is, this is an album of strong choices and this track is a strong choice for number one, but I don't think maybe it could have opened side two, but I don't know where else you would have put this song on the album other yeah. than as the opener. It just made so much sense as that of, of putting out, Again, we've talked about it in the past, you know, the statement of purpose of saying, this is what you're going to get. This is some some unique material from Mr. Gabriel this time around. And here's a song about Yunyan dream archetype, you know, different, a different approach to pop music. There was certainly no single of this song <laughs> and no video on MTV that I can recall, but it would have been... It's so funny because in some ways I was like, would this have sucked a certain amount of people into hearing something like this in a way that's still weirdly accessible? It's it's definitely weird, but it's not it's not avant-garde, weird noise, atonal. It's there's a rhythm to it, obviously, called rhythm of the heat. There's a melody to it, and it tells its own strange story in the middle of it, in its way. So I thought it was great. Yeah. I think one of the best things about this song is how hypnotic it is. Yes. And that's kind of the purpose of drone music and, and tribal uh, percussion. So like Tom, you mentioned the heartbeat, right? It sucks you in right away. I love the low drones and yeah. the pacing of the song is really, really mature and well done. It's kind of a slow build 
I feel like there's a few slow build songs on this record and they're all done so well. And I do have one uh, music nerdy comment for you guys on this one. I promise not to do this on every song, but this is a cool tie in with uh, it's why you're here. (laughs) I guess so. Maybe I will do it on every song, but um, it ties in with Genesis too. but uh, there's something called the Picardy third. Okay. If that rings a bell, it's um, basically in back in the the classical era, the, a lot of the music was written for the Christian church. Okay. So if you had like, this is like box time. If, if he had a piece that was in a minor key, he had to end it on a major chord because the minor tonality was associated with the devil and the major uh, was associated with Jesus, I guess. Hmm. And so Jesus had to win in the end. So even the minor pieces end <laughs> on this major chord, but it turned into this really cool tool where um, it's this really kind of surprising, uplifting effect when you're expecting that minor chord and it's major instead. Hmm. Okay. And when Peter goes, the rhythm as my soul, and he fa- he falls down into that major third oh, okay. when the rest of the piece is in this minor key. The rhythm has- and that's why that that moment feels so potent okay and just a year later genesis does the exact same thing in mama when he goes oh he's landing on that picardy third Mm. as well and it's so similar to me that i actually wondered if they heard this record and were like "Ooh, we should do something like that it could be you know they 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 certainly knew each other so it's 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 very possible and that is i can hear what what you're talking about I would not didn't know the terminology to identify it that way, but that's great that it that there is theory behind this in some ways. Yes. That's fantastic. I liked you know those whispering vocals. I feel like periodically through this podcast, I may just want to go the rhythm of the heat, <laughs> kind of in the background, just to kind of be like because this is spooky, and one of my favorite Gabriel piece parts of a song is in this song where Gabriel sings the the verse, you know, drawn across the plain lands to the place that is higher. And then it is repeated in the chorus yeah. in the exact same way after that. It's one of my favorite bits to sing along with in this in Peter's catalog. It's it's fantastic with that. I love it. Yeah. It's a it's a call and response kind of tool which I also, he uses a fair amount on, on this song. He does it a lot in In Your Eyes, too. Mm-hmm. Um, or he does it a lot on this record, I yeah. mean, but on In Your Eyes as well. And, yeah, it's very um, – he does it really, really well. It is infectious. Yeah. Is the way Adam was saying about how, like, it builds up and there's, like, that tribal feel. It's almost as if – I think he was writing this about something he had written read about Carl Jung and how he was with, like, some natives, and they started this drum pattern dance – and he just got really swept up in it, almost like, a, you know, how they can bring you to a frenzied state, like your mind just kind of you let go of yourself. And I think that's what this track does over the course of, I don't know, five minutes, uh, where it just all of a sudden when he does that last, the rhythm has my soul and the drums kick in and it's just building and building and building. It's just fantastic. I just people think, well, is there any concert in the past that you wish you would have gone to? I would have liked to have been at this tour yes when the band members came in from the back with drums to this you know playing this song and they would go through the crowd up onto the stage and play this song 
that would have been fantastic to, yeah. to be at and and one to not know what was coming like going back and say oh you know they did this for the you know for lots of people who are at the show they probably didn't you know what's this coming from behind me all this you know tribal music with drums and here they come through the crowd up onto the stage that would have been just a fantastic moment yeah and in that end bit there's like all these drums happening and, and a couple times there's this kind of louder drum that's like bat, 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 and it's just like just layering these little bits on top of things. I'm just like, oh, this this could sound like a mess, but it works in a lot of yeah. ways because you had these, you know, people really knew what they were doing kind of adding into this. And Tom, you just mentioned that, you know, the rhythm has my soul. And and that word soul is so stretched out. Yeah. Even longer than I remembered it being, and maybe even longer than when he would do it live, because I can imagine that it would take a lot of energy to really stretch this out so much. And maybe in the studio, that's where you feel it. And, you know, Carl Jung is all about this. I was a psych major as an undergrad, so it was all like collective unconscious and, you know, these things that we share that are almost in our, like at the DNA level. And it's a little bit, you know, kind of metaphysical in that respect, but... I also think like putting this as the first song is almost saying that like you're going to connect this album in ways that you don't understand because it is so metaphysical. It's so at a, you know, at a subconscious level that Carl Jung had this experience with tribesmen in Africa kind of dancing around a fire. Let's do a song about that because that's what music is about, about connecting at that level. And so it's it's something that really sets the stage for this album, both as just an opening track, but also as, you know, almost a cliff notes of here's maybe how you should think about this album as, as an experience and as a subconscious experience along with your conscious self. So there we have it. It'd be interesting listening to this on mescaline or something. <laughs> <laughs> and the next episode of Tabletop Genesis yeah. will be this album on mescaline. The three of us are going to go out to the desert. Yes. Do some acid, listen yep. to this, dance around. Yep. We'll do and that. I would really like to come back for that one. Yes, we'll do that. <laughs> we'll we'll put that uh, for later this summer and everything. So, yeah, I think that this is a great track. Fantastic opener. So that was Rhythm of the Heat. This is my radio DJ segues now. And now we'll get into the second piece on the album, San Jacinto. Like dying 
I think this song is the perfect follow-up to Rhythm of the Heat. Um, <laughs> it is another slow build, but this one is so based on tonal instruments and the drums take a massive backseat. So it's kind of like the other side of the coin, but it's still very meditative because it has that loop, that kind of um, bell chime loop. And my my nerdy music comment for this one, I really won't have them for every song, I promise. But for this one is that that background loop with the chimes and bells is creating a um, a suspended chord, okay. a sus chord, which uh, carries like a tension to it. It's not major or minor, and it we don't get that resolution until the I hold the light moment. So that's why I think that part is so powerful when we finally get there. Yes, a lot of instruments come in and the drums get big there and everything, but we finally have a, a resolution to our suspension. So I, it was such a risk to leave it for that long. I don't know what time in the song that happens. It's got to be like three minutes in at least. Feels like it, yeah. So it's just such a slow build, so patient. The way he sings so quietly and low throughout the beginning really draws you in, and those three minutes go by super fast. It's very well done. I've always thought that chord was very sus. <laughs> yeah. Can you confirm that? Now you're learning some lingo from your daughters. That's right. <laughs> well, it's it's funny. One of my notes to this, knowing that that Adam, that you were going to be here, was just you know, as a musician, how how do you even write a piece like this? Like that's it's so based on that loop and everything that I'm like, okay, like did he have this lyric first or this idea of just like did they just kind of hang out and do this? kind of bell chimey loopy type of thing and then say oh I can use that this might kind of if we loop this over and over again like to me that logic of putting that together is where that musician brain comes in and says oh we can do something with this right well the the thing about that sus chord is it allows for a lot of different melody possibilities as a singer so I feel like it was a good kind of bed for Peter Gabriel to mess around with mm-hmm. um, when he's kind of figuring out the top line and the lyrics and all of that. So, you know, I have no idea. I mean, he's a genius and I have no idea how he came up with, <laughs> right, yeah. with the song. But I do know that there are there were a lot of options for him to mess around with over that loop in terms of the notes he's singing. So, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure he tried a bunch of things and found found the good ones and, and kept them. Yeah. What makes this song great uh, is one of my favorite things about it is the transition from the end of the rhythm of the heat where you have this loud incredible chaotic drum sound to silence and after a few seconds of silence you just have this like almost as i call them like kind of twinkling lights sound where like the dust has settled from rhythm of the heat and now but you're still in that journey you're still in the desert more is going to be happening and so it's just, I know we talk about transition sometimes between songs. I think this was a perfect place for this song on the album. And it's very dreamlike, too, having that, yeah. you know, again, a song about dreams opening the album. And then this mood piece that's very floaty in my in my way. It's amazing to me that this song works live as well as it does. Because it is so sparse in certain ways, but it sucks you in. And not only does it suck you in on the album version but live when you're watching it with thousands of other people it works on that level too you know at you know in madison square garden you know we've seen this being performed and it's like sometimes you'd think would it hold people's attention and it does well still got that kind of like a a heartbeat rhythm to it a little bit a little bit more subtle than rhythm of the heat but it's still got that like 
feeling of life to it. And just uh, looking at some of the lyrics, a little bit reminds me of, you know, Peter's wordplay and how he's, you know, very clever with some of the words when he's talking about how the white man has kind of taken over a lot of the mm-hmm. the Native American res- reservations and their lands and kind of made it more gentrified, as they might say. Sure. Where he's talking about past Geronimo's disco, sitting bull steakhouse, like where they're kind of trying to be clever and mesh the Indian world with, you know, a fast food joint or something and how it's just become playing on that history there yeah and there's this one native american or the people who are trying to hold the line like they they they, they can't give it up like they they, this is thousands of years of sacred land to them and this is there's their own the only defense is them and they're doing their best to hold the line which is why i mean this like that first time he really cries it out it's it's just powerful and i don't know if i think when it gets to the very end the outro where it's kind of like very smooth again and it feels like they're still trying to maybe they have given up or they they're resolved with this is going to happen but they still say you know we will still walk on the land we will breathe of the air and you think that that build up would kind of end but then it's got that little outro as like a tag on it you're like it makes it more even powerful yeah yeah there's like a real resolute kind of feeling to that outro we don't know if it's uplifting or maybe sad. Like the, the tone right. is so bare there that it's it maybe up to the listener a little bit, but I feel like there's definitely a like steadfast quality to, to how he's singing there. And so, you know, in the story that there's more to come, but they're, they're determined to uh, hold the line. Yeah. And I, my kind of brief note about kind of the lyrics end of this was that to me, this is a song about the passing of time that, you know, things do change and it's not kind of an acceptance or a rejection of it. It's more of an acknowledgement of, oh yeah, this is, people have been here before. There's now an appropriation happening of some of those terms like the Sit and Bull Statehouse and things like that that you mentioned, Tom. But the core of people's experience is still there, still the undercurrent of their existence and that you as you said you know hold the line which sometimes i hear is hold the light but i think that you're probably right there with hold the line so i always thought it was hold the light for a long time and then i think i read the lyrics and it both kind of makes sense but hold the line yeah it it works a little bit better with that yeah so it's just but it is just funny it's it's kind of something you miss here but it does work kind of the same in each way and everything which is great you know, there's that that part of there, and he talks about, you know, tears run down my swollen cheek. Like, that transition into singing that line just always gets me emotionally, too. It's like it's one of those things on the studio version, on the live versions, seeing it in concert. It just continually kind of, you know, continues to hit home in a lot of ways. Both of these first two tracks on this ostensibly a rock album from a rock singer <laughs> are very non-rock in a lot of ways. So, Or, depending upon how you define rock, it is, it is rock in the broadest sense of the term, but it is not kind of three chords, hey, let's go get drunk and go dancing type of rock. Which is why I think going into the next song, you kind of need a little bit of a, a, <laughs> a mental rest to kind of yes. process what you just processed and yeah. kind of rock out a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So, so <laughs> with that... So with that, we will take a transition into the rock song of I Have the Touch. 
So Tom just mentioned kind of that this track was kind of the first of the, you know, where it was a song again, kind of jumping into this after these first two kind of strange songs. And that's what I was thinking, too, right before when the transition was happening, when I was re-listening to this. And then listening to the version on Peter Gabriel for Security, I'm like, this is still a really weird song. It's not as, again, hearing live versions and even kind of the couple remix versions that are out there which make it more of a traditional song, the arrangement of this and the the sounds of the instruments are still really strange. So it is, of the three of them, it is the most rocky sounding, but it's still not a normal rock song in any stretch of the word, which I like about it. Yeah, it was. I think I read it was the second single from this. But yeah, Shock the Monkey obviously tarted and was the most well-known song. Uh, I don't recall hearing this on the radio, even if it was a single. I know it was featured in a movie, I think that one with John Travolta. Yeah. Where Phenomenon. Yeah. Phenomenon, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, actually, I listened to the three, there's four remixes of this, actually three, because one of them is, is an edit of the remix that was in Phenomenon. But it was, I listened to them because I was like, there's the Phenomenon one, and then there's an 83 remix and an 85 remix. And one of those was on the 16 Golden Greats, compilation also and i always forget which one it is and they all are unique remixes you know it is it is very different and they all make them the drums are a little bit more straightforward in all of them it feels like the phenomenon has an extra half verse of lyrics to it they're all worth seeking out if you don't have them so but this original version still has this thing that we mentioned before where all the instruments sound a little bit different the guitar doesn't quite sound like a guitar in this track. It's it's great. I, I love the song. It was a great reminder that this original version was also really good in its own way. Yeah, this song showcases another side of Peter Gabriel, which is the pop kind of tasteful kind of hip side of him. <laughs> sure. And... When I first listened to this this week, and I hadn't listened to it in a little while before then, the first term I thought it was industrial pop. Huh, sure. Okay. Which I don't know if that term was used at the time, mm. but the drums have this real like industrial quality yeah. in the way they treat the guitar, and that feels current to me. Like We'll talk about Shock the Monkey, which feels a little bit more retro to me, a little more 80s, but the sounds on this record hold up now, or on this track hold up now, and I think... There is, there is like a, a weirdness and a kind of Peter Gabriel slightly off-kilter quality to it for sure. It, it fits on the record really well, but I think it's so hooky. Like there, it, it gets stuck in your head, and I just think Gabriel's really great at that. There, there's a moment at the end of the song, there's a little synth riff. I think it's when he's doing the outro singing, I Need Contact. Okay. There's a little... Yes. And it's just such a... It's like four notes, but it's so... it's It gives the song the boost it needs right there and I think that's the thing that he's amazing at. In in your eyes, he does the same thing on the the pre-chorus, the do 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 do, right? And these little 
just kind of hooky background instrumental things really add so much. And I think this is a good showcase of it. Yeah. There's the, the I kind of described it as the musical bed of this was really strange. And, you know, there's a part, I think just my example of that that I jotted down was about two minutes in, you know, you just hear this kind of weird what's going on in the music. And I was like, oh, this is not what I thought this track was just because I've heard other versions of it for so long. Industrial pop, I do like that phrase. More than post-punk, I'll say. <laughs> the um, It just kind of works. And, you know, the bass on this, the... Like, there's just, whether it's stick or an actual bass or whatever, this is one of those tracks where everything fits perfectly to it. So, and the lyrics are fantastic. I think that this whole idea of kind of craving touch, you know, that he's putting there, that it's that contact that, you know, he or people are striving, craving for. I was just like, as would anybody else has thought of this as a subject for a song? And then if they did, they wouldn't have written this the way that Peter Gabriel wrote it. Right. And sadly, he never gets that touch because later on on the album, he has lay your hands on me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> he so still needs he's it. Still looking for that connection. So, touch know. me, touch me. Yeah, oh, yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Going back go. to musical box, everything is. Every, this is now somebody's doctoral dissertation. This is a theme <laughs> in Peter Gabriel lyrics from the beginning until modern days. So, so we'll see how this goes. I always thought that the not always, but just listening to it recently, the. Now you think about it every day. That's always. So. <laughs> the descending bit of the end reminded me of an end of a Peter Gabriel song on the next album. I always thought that the end of this sounded a little bit like the ending of Big Time. Sure. Oh, yeah. Okay. All those da, 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 yeah. I could see that. Just reminded me of that a little bit. Okay. A little bit of a connection there. I could. Yeah. I, again, it's all, you know, some... Sometimes you do have your bag of tricks that you fall into as a musician, as a writer, or whatever it may be, and it's like, and if that's that may be a trick for him that that works. So, so now we're going to transition to get caught in the family in the fishing net. I 
spaces. This almost came close to being my favorite song on the album. Ooh. And I, I don't know if, I don't think I'm in the my, my majority about this. I think I know there are some other songs that people like better, but there was something always about the song, even from the plays live days where it's just so weird and so out there. It's got that prog finesse, mm. <laughs> which is an inside joke between Mike and I when, what was I trying to say? Oh, I was trying to text him that something had progginess. Oh, yes. It got all connected <laughs> to prog finesse. Oh, yeah, that's this funny. Has, yeah. This has that prog finesse about it. <laughs> uh, just everything where it starts off bizarre with the sounds. The lyrics are really out there. Yeah. But everything is just like beautifully written, the way he puts the words together, that you sing it as if it's just like any other regular pop lyrics. Yeah. You're singing, but you're singing about... Honey Belly pulls the seams, Pale Zeros tinge the tiger skin. I mean, how great is that? I mean, just the way they flow off the tongue. And you're talking about headless chickens dancing <laughs> circles. Like, none of this would be pop material today, but it's yeah. just so great. And I really don't think it, I know we talked about me and Sarah Jane, how it doesn't really repeat any of the themes throughout the song. I don't think this really does, maybe one or two, but I think it starts at one place goes through a journey and ends at a completely different place. And I just love everything about it. Yeah. For me, this was, I had mentioned thinking that I have the touch was the first kind of like classic song to, as a song on the album, as a classic term, like, Oh, this is a song. This is an example of a song. But when I listened to this, I was like, Oh no, this is the first real song on the album that has like an intro versus chorus. It, it is straightforward in some ways which is what I'm thinking of as a song, whereas I Have the Touch had some of that, but not quite. It looks more like a regular song on the surface, and then when you listen to I Have the Touch, it's not quite as straightforward as it seems, whereas this, it's certainly long and has that prod finesse, but it's not, <laughs> but it is more of a classic song in its structure. The lyrics don't come in, I time this, until minute 19, minute 20 into it, I'm like, oh, so there's that nice kind of mood setting intro, but there's a structure to this and a build to it that is like, oh, after these first three songs, this is a song and it's presenting you with something. I know Gabriel said like, oh, yeah, this is about, you know, the many headed organism called a family and everything. Even even with it being called family in the fishing net. Again, what does that mean? <laughs> I don't I don't think I got that. Oh, this is about families like until he kind of said that and even after he says that i'm like okay i get that but it's not some i get it from no, hearing the lyrics and knowing that's the context that he wrote it in not just from the song itself i was reading that this song is about a wedding and comparing it to a voodoo um <laughs> sure. ceremony like we have these wedding ceremonial rituals that we don't realize are so arcane and that we just kind of accept as normal. I don't know if this is correct or not, but I, I was just reading that about no, the song. We'd have I, to go. I remember that also. That yeah. Maybe he got the idea for it from be going to a wedding and kind of seeing the family interactions there. So Right. One beast, many heads was, I think, how he described it. So. Yeah, that's such a great uh, way to describe it. It's, it's funny that, Tom, you said this song feels like nothing repeats and it just goes from one section to another. 
and how Mike, you're saying this feels like a traditional song structure. And I thought about doing like a structure deep dive into the song and I didn't, and now I'm super regretting it, (laughs) but I I do believe that. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. We could, we could hit pause right now. I'll go do it and we'll come back. But, um, I do think that there are moments that repeat themselves. I know the intro part only happens the once, but I think instead of a traditional chorus, the lyrics change. So it's hard to like realize that it's the same bit happening again, but I do think there are some repeated bits in there, but I love how, so it uses kind of a Eastern sounding flavor the whole way through. But then at the very end, it becomes like blues, Hmm, you know, when he's singing the family and the fishing net. And I just, I don't know how you decide to do that. It's so out of nowhere, but it works absolutely perfectly. This song, um, I agree with you, Tom, like it could be the best song on the record for sure. I also think that this song uses, it's so considered in the instrumentation and in the production. There are these little quick interjections from like the fluty kind of synth that happen every once in a while that are so um, clever and perfect. And then there's one with the bass. I wrote the time of it if anyone wants to go back and listen, but it's at 428. Okay. In the song. If you go back and listen, there's this crazy bass fill that I didn't notice the first couple listens through. It's just super well done, very, very clever, and all these things kind of come together to make this song a masterpiece. Yeah. This is a song for me that's grown in estimation over time because I think when I first got this album, like, I, I just didn't get it. I didn't think it was bad, but I was like, oh, it's lawn. It doesn't go anywhere, whatever. I was in my teenage years. I was like, what is this family and fishing net thing? But I didn't dislike it. I just wished it was a little bit shorter. But over time, it has become, it's certainly in the top half of the album for me. And seeing him play it live, even I know on the, like, So Back to Front tour, this was one of the older songs he played. And I'm like, oh, he has a real affection for this song, too. It certainly is not a radio song that people knew because, again, you're getting a crowd going to those shows where it's like, oh, here's, you know, I'm playing my most popular album ever. Let's pull out the family in the fishing net. Yeah. I was like, all right, you're you're giving these people something different to really kind of sink their teeth into. And it was great. I thought that that those moments there were fantastic. I liked that. At about three minutes in, maybe about 2.50, there's some of that Gabriel E's kind of like gibberish that he sings at different times. Like yeah. either when he doesn't have lyrics or he just kind of uh, does, his, does his own thing there. There's some weird gruntings at like 4.20 or so where I'm just like, I don't know if I've noticed these before. Where it's like, again, the arrangement of this works so well kind of in the build with it this is also where i made an an ancillary note not necessarily about this song but i i put a note on in my margins where i said did humans make this music because (laughs) it was it feels so this album in some ways feels so alien to me in again great ways but it's like yeah people had to sit in a studio and make this and i'm again Sounds were manipulated and processed and Sinclavier type of, you know, work was done where you can get like pipes banging and get that in, as a musical sound. But, so it was all human based. But I was just like, you know, what humans sat and did this? And the answer is Peter Gabriel. So and his collaborators. So 
I feel like this song came from the same part of his brain that created Willow Farm. Hmm. <laughs> sure. You know, like there's there's a side of him that's really theatrical and dramatic and kind of spooky, and but it's still it's not hard to listen to. Like he does have some more avant-garde stuff that takes several listens and it's harder to sink your teeth into. But something like this is still so catchy and so like enjoyable all the way through, even in its weirdness. And I just think he does that so well. Yeah, it's great. This is, and getting back to an album structure, this is a great end of side one. It has that frenzied trance quality that Rhythm of the Heat has. But again, it, it ties to what the song is about, like wedding rituals and, and just things start swirling around in your head, all these pictures that he's painting in your head. But then it gets to that moment where memories crash on tireless waves mm-hmm. and he brings all that frenzy to a standstill. Like after the line, the lifeguards whom the winter saves, there's like a stop for like a half a second in the music. And you like know I love full stops. So everything becomes silent, and there's like this background, like kind of sound that's kind of like pulsing up as he's singing these lines. But I like that you know everything was crazy before, and after that line, there is like that second of silence before he goes into silence falls the guillotine, and and then it builds back up again to the frenzied ending. And as you said, it's a perfect way to end side one. And I think these four songs in a row pretty much make up a perfect side to a gay role yeah, album. For sure. Like, I don't have any complaints with the order they're in, the start, the ending. It's just like, that was a great yep. 20 minutes of music or whatever it was. And it gives you no clue what's coming next. You know, it's like, you can't say that these songs sound like each other other than they sound very unique. And so it's four unique songs in a row. So what is going to be next? You don't really know when you're a first time listener, kind of like, oh yeah, this is gonna be more of the same because it certainly is not. So with that, we're gonna take our mid album break to talk about some of the viewer mail that we've got coming in, which I'm still just gonna call it viewer mail because you know Letterman back in the day did that with things. So, so listeners, what do we have coming in from you guys? What comments did we jump to the front? So Tom, let's talk about viewer mail. When I opened your letter yesterday, I could not believe my eyes. Cause I've already given all So I reached into the mailbag as yes. <laughs> I did in the old days, <clears throat> pulled out a half a dozen people who were kind enough to share their thoughts on the album, whether it was on Facebook or Twitter or on uh, the website when they voted in the poll. I'll start with Cristiano Jepsen said, this is an album that upon the first few listens didn't connect with me. The song sounded muddly over padded and blended together, but it was by the fifth listen that the album sunk in. And since then, every revisit has revealed new treasures from the soaring highs of rhythm of the heat to the haunting wallflower. This album has now become my favorite of Gabriel's. My vote goes to San Jacinto with its powerful chorus and sublime rhythm work and film like narrative in the lyrics. Phenomenal. Agreed. I have to agree with all that. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin Bokes has a good memory to share. I'd agree on San Jacinto as his favorite song, which creates such an atmosphere from the introduction right through the climax to the song. I too saw this live at Selhurst Park, a UK soccer stadium in 1983, and remember the day in this track so strongly. 
Phil Collins was on standby to drum the entire concert due to the illness of the normal drummer, but in the event, he just came on at the end. Peter gave him such a lovely introduction. Aww. That's very cool. That would have been a nice one to be at. Alicia Danielle Wright says, what a delightful album. It was fun to listen to the radio hits once again. I mean, Shock the Monkey is a real booty-moving blast from my childhood <laughs> past. But Lay Your Hands on Me just rocked me to my core while listening to the album in its entirety. Listening to it today as my middle-aged self, facing uncertainty, was truly refreshing and soul-warming. I love that gated drum sound toward the end of the song, and the chorus just soared. Thank you for putting me back in touch with this music. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> Uh, last two, Philip Bunny or Bunet, apologize. <laughs> I cannot put on Rhythm of the Heat without listening to it multiple times. It's so primitive and it has a flow that just doesn't let up. I can see Peter performing this and being joined by Phil and Chester in the last few bars, and suddenly they kick into their drum duet leading into Los Endos. <laughs> <laughs> People are making their own kind of concert moments out of this music in ways. So that's great. I Have the Touch was perhaps the first Gabriel solo tune I heard while being driven to a Genesis tribute gig. <laughs> How many layers of Genesis and things? That's such a, that's amazing. Just that My statement. My driver, Genesis John, RIP, introduced me to all the actions Peter would do on stage. Shake those hands, stroke my hair, touch my nose. Well, how did he introduce you to those? I'm just <laughs> yeah. Although I have I to admit, I prefer the Robbie Robertson remix. Yeah, that's why it's, it's a bit more, I don't want to say it's traditional because it's still a weird song, but it's a great mix of, you know, the original music and different instrumentation laid on top of it there. So I just, it made me realize, I don't think I've actually seen I Have the Touch performed live at any of the Gabriel shows that I've been to. No, I don't think I have. Yeah. Be great if he revisited that, perhaps in the future. So. Perhaps in the future. After yeah. he listens to this episode, he I surely think, will. I, I think he will <laughs> dive into here and he'll have a smile at all of our comments, except maybe for the last song. But we'll go <laughs> so. Pete, do us a solid. Yes. Last one from Kevin Moss. As a mobile DJ, I often cranked up Lay Your Hands on Me, specifically when the drums really kick in at about 4.30. Wallflower is one of Gabriel's spot-on political songs and demonstrated his zeal for the issues tackled by Amnesty International. Rhythm of the Heat is a classic concert opener. Every song on this album is Pete Gabriel. His pick was San Jacinto, and he says, As a teacher, I've played the song for students when studying poetry. Hmm. such vivid pictures and musically it's slow build to a crescendo followed by the haunting tag at the end it's gabriel at his best and it remains a highlight for me yeah those are all great comments from everyone i think that it's you know i i don't think anybody made any comments that were like eh, this isn't great you know th this is an album that is again i I've, i don't want to say universally beloved but it's as close as you're going to get to something like that, you know, where, you know, this album is pretty solid. I know it's one of Tony Banks's personal favorites with uh, of Gabriel's stuff. So that was, you know, he on an interview around. So he again, in very Tony Banks way, he's like, I like the last album a lot better. <laughs> so, but that's uh, that's Tony Banks for you there. So. So thank you, everyone, for sharing your comments. And we're looking forward. To, we look forward to reading more in the future. Indeed. So now we'll dive into side two with a little ditty that you may have heard before called Shock the Monkey. Shock the 
is a song with a groove that you cannot quit. Because then <laughs> I think one of the comments uh, was about, you know, shaking the booty to this song and everything. And it is a song that is as danceable as Gabriel gets, I think, which is pretty danceable, but it's it just works with that. My only critique of this song, and I did mention this to Adam before the show, and I know we're not supposed to talk about things before we save it for the podcast is the line, <laughs> is that I think it goes on a little bit too long at the end. And maybe that's because maybe I got used to hearing there is a single edit for this. And maybe that's what I got used to hearing on the radio or something that it just tightens it up from like a five minute song to a four, four and a half minute song. I think just the whole shot, the monkey shot, the monkey at the end just goes on a little bit much. But I still like the album version. It's just if I were going to change anything about the track, that would be it. Yeah, this is a tough one because kind of like a sledgehammer i feel like i've it's a great song but it, um, my judgment is a little clouded because i feel like i've heard it so much but i'm so i'm trying to remove that from my analysis the, the fact that i feel like i've heard it all the time it's played every concert i don't know why i wrote down live dance moves for this song maybe i was talking <laughs> about the way peter <laughs> does they do their little and, jump you know shock, you know I it's guess like, so. what the heck did i write for that were you and trying to act them out yourself, like Peter's uh, moves that Dorian and I have the touch, perhaps? So. It's, it's just one that, yeah, I think if I had had MTV back at the time and I would seen this video, I probably would have dived into Peter's music sooner than I did because it's just very bizarre and out there. And, and who is this guy wearing the face paint? And what is what does this video mean? What the monkeys, you know, with their, you know, yes. <laughs> scary faces and... I mean, it's a it's a good song. It's just it's hard to talk about it without. I don't know. I'll let Adam go. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I I thought I would have the same feelings that you had on my uh, first re-listen. I was like, all right, Shock the Monkey. I know this one the best. I've heard it a million times. I could probably skip it. Two seconds in, I'm hooked again. Yeah. There is a thing about the song that's really infectious. Uh, which listener called it a booty shaker? Right. Um, Holy shit. Yeah, I mean, she's she's a hundred percent right. Like, it is one of his grooviest, most danceable songs. It is. Um, it showcases another side of him. I, I talked about this a little bit with "I Have the Touch," but he's an excellent pop song writer. But I think the hero of this song is Tony Levin. Mm, it has one of the best, like, funky bass lines possible. And uh, here's another music nerd alert. But the reason why it works so well is that he never plays on beat one of every measure. Sometimes when you have, like, bass and bass drum and all these things happening on beat one, it can weigh a song down okay. and it doesn't become as, like, bouncy or groovy. So you have the dun-dun of the mallets. Mm -hmm. And then Tony Levin comes in after that okay. happens. And so it just kind of keeps it really light and really groovy and it's it's just a masterclass in like groove beat construction and how it interacts with the drums and everything it is it is a perfect beat the lyrics are funny you know and one thing i also noticed is there's a bridge in this song where everything kind of cuts out and you get some mallets happening for a minute and that to me is a really great callback to san jacinto like it, it works on its own but i think it ties it in with the album really beautifully which was something i appreciated a lot this was certainly my first exposure to Peter Gabriel at all from MTV and everything. 
yeah, it's it is something that especially as a kid, you're like, you know, you made the shot the monkey, spanked the monkey, whatever, you know, silly little <laughs> jokes you made and everything, which I'll still make as a 51 year old, which is fine. But it's it's like there's it's another track where I think that Gabriel introduces it as, oh, this is a song about jealousy. And I remember maybe it was the 2003 tour where he does that. And I was like, really? <laughs> OK. And it's it again gives me a different perspective on it. But I'm like, you know, there's just the way he sings, like, throw the pearls before the swine, make the monkey blind. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is <laughs> this is a crazy song. And I just love it. But I also playing it live, like I really liked on the, on the back front tour where it was one of the ones played in the acoustic set at the beginning. And I'm like, oh, this is it, this song still works even in that arrangement. It's something that, you know, shows the bare bones of it. And it's like, oh, there is a song here that all the kind of Peter Gabriel 4 arrangement tricks don't, it just adds to it in a different way. It doesn't take it away. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't, it doesn't corrupt the, the song basis of it. So it works really well for me. Now that we're done with shocking the monkey, it's time to lay your hands on me. Not me. Oh, too late. The the royal too late, me. Too late. <laughs> All right, too late.
countless roses fat men play with their garden hoses. This is another one where it feels like only lyrics Gabriel could write. Yeah. Just from the beginning, sat in the corner of the garden grill with plastic flowers on the windowsill. And the way he delivers these verses in kind of like a spoken word manner is again something that I don't think Gabriel did often. I'm sure he did it somewhere else, but it just seems like birds. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Working in gardens, thornless roses, fat men play with their garden hoses. (laughs) One of my favorite Gabriel lines ever. I love that line. Yeah. Poolside laughter has a cynical bite, sausage speared by the cocktail satellite. I mean, just insane. I mean, just what's going on in his head. It's hard not to also associate this with the way it was done live and Peter, you know, standing towards the back of the stage and as the song progresses, walking closer and closer to the edge of the stage until he turns his back and you don't know what he's going to do. Like you assume, well, he wouldn't fall back into the crowd. That's crazy. (laughs) And then the arms go outstretched. He does the infamous Jesus pose for a second and then just falls back and you're just like i i don't know if many people had done that before probably in the punk world i'm sure uh but when you're talking about like a, a regular rock stage that was probably unheard of at the time for yeah. for a lot of people i mean just to give yourself up to a crowd and trust that you're going to survive yeah it's one of these songs that like, I know, I think, I think, I never want to say I know, but I believe Gabriel said that he wrote it specifically because he wanted to have this moment live and wanted a song to build to that. And so with that purpose behind it, it all kind of made sense because, like, you were quoting the lyrics before. I'm like, I don't know what this song is about, you know, other than lay your hands on me. And so this is one of those tracks that, is so built to be a live track, but still, even as a, as the studio version, works at a level that I wouldn't necessarily expect it to. But even you just describing kind of how Gabriel would perform this sends shivers down my back, just kind of hearing about that and hearing about this moment, which I never saw him actually do, but I've seen video of it and that type of thing. And I'm like, oh, it would have been great to have been there, even if I wasn't one of those people at the front who would have actually helped carry him back or whatever. But just to be there as a concert goer, you know you're seeing something that you really don't get anywhere else. Yeah, this song makes me wish I was older and and (laughs) alive for for those moments. This one really works for me, too. It's another call and response vibe at the end, um, which he does so well. It's another slow build type of song. And I didn't write this down, but I just thought of it now. It actually reminds me of the opening song from Up called Darkness, I think. Because he does, you mentioned the spoken word, Tom. He does the spoken word thing and then just kind of instantly transitions into this beautiful lyrical type of singing. And he does it so well. And it's such a quick switch but it's it it's what makes the song it gives the song its character because also the words he's singing when he gets lyrical are a little bit more earnest and kind of powerful and when he's doing the spoken word he's he's doing the the kind of cheeky jokes and the kind of cynical metaphor and all of that so that makes the song really artful and then one other thing i wanted to point out that i thought was so cool was there's a sound that kind of 
keeps happening where it almost sounds like a bottle rolling around on the ground. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And it's those kind of found soundy things that happen on the record too that I think give the record its character. And this one just really sticks out and I think adds a lot. Yeah, there's there's things that you hear every time. This whole album is full of it, but you hear it for almost like the first time where, you know, in the first, in the choruses, when it's the lay your hands on me, there's a, like right after that line, it goes, lay your hands on me here. And I'm just like, oh, like, I don't know if I've really noticed that here before that's added in there. And maybe again, maybe it's not in live versions or if it is, it's kind of, you know, a little bit lost. But it was just one of those little touches where I was like, yeah, this this works in a lot of ways. There's such a build to this. I love the little the first notes of the bass that come in. It's like, and it just has, Oh yeah. It's these little, it's these little arrangement pieces or these little things that they discovered in the studio when they were, you know, after writing or rehearsing these things. And it's just, it shows how different each track was from each other. As much as there's some of these sounds that are, that are similar or they're playing on other, other things. I also said, you know, it talks about stairways leading underground and maybe just because we had just seen the musical box do the lamb, I was like, oh, going underground. This feels very lambish to me in some <laughs> ways. So, you know, again, I'm not going to say that was Gabriel's point in writing those lyrics. But again, I like these. If we're talking about the subconscious again, I like these subconscious things that kind of go through Gabriel's lyrics as a writer. The, the end where it builds up with the repeated drum sounds when he's, you know, lay your hands on me and, and in concert when he's just he almost becomes kind of trance-like in his walk to the stage. And I, I have to imagine that doing this for him was letting go of something, his self, and just letting other people take over. And it gets to a point where I think it's on the Athens uh, video of this song uh, from the So Tour, where like they're starting to rip his clothes yes. to shreds. And they're, yes. they're ripping his jacket off. I mean, it, it gets to a point where even the crowd gets pulled into this frenzy of this is not a god but this is someone who is bringing to us this music and i want a piece of him and you know it's you can t see the roadies trying to get, grab his feet back and pull him back onto the stage before you know he ends up naked <laughs> yeah but yeah he, he gets back on stage and you could just see he had established this connection with the audience where he trusted them they trusted him and another one of those songs where i would have loved to have been there and and as adam said i wish i had been older to to be yes. able to see that in concert it's great it's it's and the way everything builds even in volume the drums are building up at the end until you know it comes to that final kind of note and close of the song because it it's the arrangement here just works fantastically you know again not a song that you might think that the studio version would be as good as the moments of the live version but it it is it is the same for me it does work that way now we're on to the seventh and penultimate track of the album a pretty little song called wallflower
Wallflower is, I think, one of Peter Gabriel's best songs ever. It showcases yet another side of him, which is not the pop side and not the theatrical art rock side, but the like song craftsman side. I know he's talked a lot in, in later days about how much he appreciates songwriting and songwriters, and he had the whole uh, New Blood project. And this is one of those songs that, like, holds up there with any Paul Simon or any Stevie Wonder, Burt Bacharach, those yeah. those people you think of. And it doesn't need any of the... The arrangement is terrific and the production is terrific, but it doesn't need any of it. He could do the song solo piano or with an acoustic guitar or whatever, and it would be just as great. So I think it's like absolute masterpiece. The lyrics are really somehow uplifting when it's about a dark yeah. topic. And every time he plays it live, it's a highlight for me in his shows yeah, yeah a, a perfect song yeah i think though the the first time in this song when when those hold ons come out when he sings that line numerous times in a row it just kills me every time i hear this song it's like it's it's the most direct and emotional part for me of this album this song is tremendous from that opening kind of like the sound and then there's this little kind of flutish sound melody that plays at the beginning that comes back at the end playing something a little bit different but again it's that thing that i think in the throughout the song it's not there at all so it ties it back you were talking about adam before about kind of things revisiting and i was just like within this track because you don't hear it throughout the song when it does come back it helps again bring that in into the emotional piece of this so so i love it tom doesn't like it <laughs> tom thinks it's awful this is the worst song. No, no, no. I, I love this song. I, I, oh, good. I've always loved it. I think I have to give it more. I have to go someplace and just listen to this on headphones or something. I know I love the song, but it's just from what people have said in the comments and from other things I've heard about the song, like, and what Adam's saying, it's probably one of Peter's best songs. I want to 
spend more time with it and really kind of appreciate it more than I'm able to right now. I don't, it sounds like I'm being negative, but I don't mean to, like, I love this song, but like, it's, I want to get to where everyone else is on this song. And I know I can do it. I love when the piano comes in around three minutes that da, 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 like it starts off with descriptions of very negative places, obviously, but it goes on to be, have a very positive and uplifting message. And I like that feel to it where like he's overcome what the circumstances are and he's going to rise above it. I will, you know, you may just appear, you're not forgotten here. And I will say you, I will do what I can do and I will do what I can do. Like it, it's just, mm-hmm. it, it is a very uplifting message. So I, I do love this song, but I, I want to get to the place where everyone else seems to be on yeah. this. It's, it's the most song it's the most traditional sounding thing on this album and it's very straightforward. It's, it doesn't have a lot of the processing that, that the other songs had. And it's, I made a note that it was probably the only song on this album that could have appeared on his first album. And that's not a bad critique. It's more just like, Oh, the the first album was a bit more in some ways, traditional song structures. And this would fit in with that. It's more naked and straightforward in the arrangement. And and I did note that it was probably the closest to Hey Jude that Peter Gabriel ever got. <laughs> Just because I could see at the end with that, with the lyrics being, you know, the one that you quoted, Tom. I was like, that becomes the na-na-na-na-na-na type of thing that, right. you know, that gets you to the end of this song. I figured out kind of why I might not have listened to the song as much. It's because Side 1 is so perfect. And side two for me doesn't is not as strong because you have kind of the shock the monkey at the the, the star kiss of life is you know it's fine so it's like I, I look forward to listening to side one and probably listen to that a lot more than side two which is why I just haven't spent a lot of time with you know probably two of the strongest tracks lay your hands on me and wallflower so yeah. I think I just need to spend a little more time and maybe start with side two the next time I listen to this album and then go back to side one. It will be time well spent if you do that. <laughs> yeah, very worth it. I do have a another music nerd comment for this one. Yay. Without going too deep into it, there's in any key there are songs that like feel resolved and so, uh, sorry, there are chords that feel resolved and there are chords that feel unresolved and have tension and need to go somewhere. The, the chord called the five chord okay. in any key is the one that really needs to resolve. Mm-hmm. And he ends this song on the five chord. So it, it has this tension, not this tension like in a um, rhythm of the heat type of way where you're like balled up, but this very subtle quality of unfinished. And if you go back and listen to the song, Tom, which I know you're about to do 20 times today, (laughs) (laughs) listen for that because I think it works so well with the story of like, you'll never disappear. You're not forgotten here. Right. So it's this like, this is your story is unfinished. We're going to keep telling it. Um, We're going to keep fighting for social justice. Right. There's this big like the, the work is just beginning kind of feeling by him ending the core, the song on that chord. And I know it was very deliberate. Normally you would just give it one more chord and kind of mm-hmm. like round it out. And he, he left it out. I would almost guarantee on purpose. Sure. Tom, if you're looking to fall in love with this song, I think from around the time of the new blood shows, there is a video of Gabriel in, in his studio with 
the piano player that he was arranging things with and they do basically a two-person version of this with the piano player playing the piano and Gabriel singing this. And I think it was on either Gabriel's website. I'm sure it's out on YouTube now or something. But find that because that hearing the song that way is is another way to be introduced to this song. And I think it's it's something that hearing Gabriel just standing there singing this with no processing on his vocals, just kind of being out there singing this, it, it's a way that touches you in a different way. I will do that. Yeah. So, and listeners, this is not just a recommendation for Tom. Anyone <laughs> hearing this can do that same thing. If you don't know the video I'm talking about, it's well worth the couple minutes it would take to find it online. Yeah, I, I've never seen it, but now yeah. I'm really excited. I'll try to tweet it out or something at some point because it's, it's now, that, now that I'm thinking about it, I haven't watched it in years, so I probably should. So with that, we've reached the final track on this fantastic, wonderful, almost perfect album. And this track is Case of Life. I called this an almost perfect album, and this might be the reason why I called this album <laughs> almost perfect. This is I like this song. This song is totally fine. This song to me is a great B-side. And it just doesn't quite it's it sounds like he wanted to end the album with an up song and kind of something that was fun and light and everything, but I think there's different ways you can be fun and light than this. And I would have, I, I thought about this this morning. I was like, I would have preferred this song, this album to end with I Go Swimming. Oh, yeah. Because as a song, you get that kind of up, fun type of thing with a better song than Kiss of Life. And so that would be my one change to this album that I think would get it to be from being almost perfect to 99.9% perfect. The one note I had on this was. You know, put on my salsa shoes. <laughs> Just kind of go. And yeah, I kind of like what like I said before. Side one, I've played a lot more than side mm -hmm. two, and I think it's because of one 
I, I hear Shock the Monkey enough on the radio where I would skip it if I played on this album. And Kiss of Life is a fine song, but it's not one that I feel like I need to hear or sit down and put on headphones yeah. to. It's, it's got that rocking quality. Again, towards the end, it's got that big buildup of rhythm and drums and yep. and has a... I do love the great end, the, 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 the yes. full stop at the end. I think that's a great ending to a song. Whether it's the ending of this album, I don't know. It might, perhaps I Go Swimming would be better. I, I can't remember how that song ends or if it's just a fade out or... It kind of ends. It ends in the same way. Think about the live version on on plays right. live. It it does over. It, it it comes to a real conclusion. So even if it faded out, I think I go swimming. I I just think I go swimming is a better song and would give me the same type of feel that an up song like this does. And and again, I I like this song. I actually think the bass or stick or whatever it is on this on this track is really good. Like there's bits of that that I really enjoy, and I think. The middle middle eight of this track is really good. It just doesn't quite get to the level of the other songs for me of the, on this. Yeah, he didn't really stick the landing here. And it's a shame because <laughs> I agree with you 100% that if this song was I Go Swimming instead, it would be a perfect album. And up until now, it's a perfect album. It, it's missing a hook. The uh, I can't even sing it right now. Uh, if I tried, there is a chorus and he's just singing the words kiss of life, I think, but it's not, it's not a good hook. And so the the time you mentioned the intro and the outro, that percussive dancey, like that really works. I think I even think the verses are really kind of jaunty and fun. It's just missing like a thing that makes you remember the song and that makes it hit home in any sort of way. There isn't like an emotional connection. It is well done and it's not, I don't even consider it a skipper. Like if I get to this part of the album, I'll listen to it through and it's fun and it makes you move a little bit, but it doesn't, there's kind of like a shallowness to it that that is a shame because all the other songs are perfect. Yeah, I, I think this song actually works better out of the context of the album. Yeah, like when I do hear it randomly, and actually here in New York, there's this band called the Ed Palermo Big Band that does. They're kind of known for doing big band arrangements of Frank Zappa music, but they've recently, in the last ten years, that's recent in my life now, have gotten more into doing some other artists too. And one time they ended with this track. And so with a big band kind of horn arrangement to it, still with the same mood and kind of, you know, pace to it, I was like, oh, I really like this. This is fun. Right. Like, but it's to end Peter Gabriel 4? Like, that's why I said if this were a B-side, I think it would be like, this is a great B-side. I can see why it's not on the album. Like we've talked about with some of the Genesis songs here and there. So so anyway, that's, that's Kiss of Life for me. You know, I, I think that positive wish the album had ended a little bit differently but it's it's not enough to kill the album for me or anything it's still a fantastic album you know there, there are bits in this where i love the drums whereas like yeah like it's just really well done but yeah it's not a skipper it keeps it from being a perfect album yep yeah which hey you know how many perfect albums are there? <laughs> how many can you have in your life Three or four, that's it. You know, this this is there's a lot of those very close albums, and this is one of those. And and you know, it certainly doesn't mean that we don't that the, that it's a problem. It's just like, ah, oh, you know, it could have been a little bit better there. So. Damn, only seven eighths of this album are perfect. That's yeah, crazy. exactly. So now a question I wanted to ask you guys that I wrote down was and it's funny, I haven't really thought about this with other Peter Gabriel albums. But could you hear Genesis do any of these songs 
in an alternate universe where Gabriel was still in Genesis, or maybe he decided to rejoin in the early 80s or something like that, and they were presenting songs instead of doing it all through jamming, does anything here sound like Genesis to you or that Genesis could have taken and run with? Hmm. I haven't thought about that. All right. <laughs> I could hear Phil Collins doing a slightly poppier version of Wallflower. He uses chords and a piano part that feels very Phil-ish to me, like against all odds kind of vibe. And I think I could hear like pop Genesis, Invisible Touch Genesis doing Shock the Monkey. Hmm. Sure. Especially because it's, it's pretty keyboard heavy, but that's probably about it. For me, I actually, when I thought about this, I, I see exactly, I think Wallflower is a contender and Shot the Monkey is, is I think, a, a good one too. I could actually see Genesis really doing a build with wet lay your hands on it. Ah. I could see, you know, with, again, keeping it restrained, not going crazy with it, but doing a version of it because... You mentioned kind of some of the vocal stuff with Mama and um, I forget if it was Rhythm of the Heat or which track kind of had that that descending yeah, vocal it was piece rhythm of the heat. Where it was, where I'm like, I could see because Genesis was able to do a track like Mama, they could be restrained enough to do a track like Lay Your Hands On Me, which in the past they might have been over encouraged to put more layers onto it. So, but they were kind of shifting from that. So it was just, you know, thinking about this being at the same time as, you know, the mama album, that 82, 83 timeframe and everything, they were in similar spaces. And so it just made me think about it that way. So, so listeners, if you have any tracks that you thought, think the Genesis would be able to do very well with, with or without, if Genesis decided to do a covers album back in that day, and they are like, we're going to cover a Peter Gabriel song, what would they have covered from this album? I have a question for you guys. Feel free to cut this. Um, <laughs> but we're talking about this being an almost perfect album. I'm wondering if you have any perfect albums in your, in mm. your you know, life. It doesn't have to be Genesis or Peter Gabriel or anything, but... Revolver, The Beatles. That's the first one that comes to my head. So That's a know, very that's, perfect album, yeah. yeah. There's, there's not a bad song on that one. I'd probably have to go with The Wall. I think The Wall is a perfect album. Okay. I would maybe go Dark Side if I were going to do Pink Floyd for that. Sorry, Dark Side. Dark Side too. <laughs> okay. How about you, Adam? Anything? There's a few jazz albums I can think of for sure, but I the, the older I get, the more I feel that Trick of the Tail is mm. a perfect album. Sure. I used to not like the song A Trick of the Tail, but it's grown on me. So that was the one kind of weak link. Yeah. And now I really like it. So I'd say right. that's a perfect album for me. Yeah. Another eight track album. So much like this album. Yeah. Excellent. So cool. Well, we've talked about everything. There were, uh, there was a B side of soft dog, which I don't know if either of you guys have heard, which actually the, there's a, it's an instrumental with Gabriel basically singing soft dog, the, the words at the end of it. And the guitar sounds a little I go swimming-ish. It has a little bit of that feel to it. But that was kind of it for alternate songs. And then there were the 18 different remixes of I Have the Touch, which we kind of already talked about. Have you guys ever listened to the Deutsches album? I have not. I would like to, but I have not heard it. I, I have not either, and I'm surprised because I took German in high school and a couple of years ago. As did I, and- yeah. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's now it's, I think at the time it was 
hard to come by. I, mean, I remember back. seeing it once in a used record store yeah. on CD for like thirty or forty dollars, and I sh- <laughs> if I I didn't have the money to buy it back then because that was like three or four other CDs, you know, depending upon the prices and all that. So I think it's available. I'm I'm like to give it a listen. It's it is on I think Amazon Prime Music if you have oh, that. Okay. So because uh, I remember when I went to that's how I listened to it this time, and right next to it was Deutsch's album. I'm like. Wow. I'm I'd love to hear the family in the fishing net in German, like stuff like yeah. that. I'm just like, wow, what does that sound like? Das Fischer Nets. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like the running order is a little bit different. They have hmm. Rhythm of the Heat, Family in the Fishing Net. I have The Touch, which I believe is Contact. Okay. <laughs> and San Jacinto finishes out side one. Okay. Hmm. Side two is Shocked and F. Offen. Yeah, yeah. Black Monkey. Honda Honda Flaugen. Is that Wallflower? Uh oh, lay your hands on me, I think. Oh. Yeah. Nicht die Erde hot dish for Schlucht. I don't know. Mm. Mun Bootman. Um, okay. I'll let yeah. everybody else go find it. Right, yeah. <laughs> I think on some of the bootlegs when he performed in Germany, I think he sing shot the monkey in German. Like there's some of those ones that maybe for the third album too, if you have any boots of those German shows, some of those he does sing them in German. Like, I know Here Comes the Flood, Jetzt kommt right. die Flut is, is one that he would often kind of be able to whip out in German and everything, and, and probably worked the best in German also. Interesting um, why he chose German. Did he have some affinity to the language or the country? or? I guess it was a big market and kind of was, yeah, like because he didn't do a French version or a right. Spanish version or something like that. But yeah, it could have just been something that maybe the German market was a bit more open to hearing versions in their own language, whereas maybe the French would have been like, ooh, maybe we don't want this. <laughs> I bet the Italians would have appreciated it. Yeah, I mean, that yes, would have been right. something too. Exactly, like his, you know, just him and the Italians going back all the way to the Genesis days. Yeah. Yep, yep. But, but, but yeah, so interesting. So, well, now we're at the time where we talk about our own favorites and then we'll get to taking a gander at Tom's poll, I believe. So... Adam, you're the guest. What was your favorite track on this album? At first, I thought it was a tough decision, but for me, it's Wallflower. Okay. Yeah. Just for the songwriting aspect of it, I think it hits home the most. I'd say San Jacinto would be a close second. Maybe Rhythm of the Heat is... I think the other... Other than Kiss of Life, all the other songs are a close second. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, Wallflower. Yeah. I, I will jump on that and say I voted for Wallflower also. All right. Uh, it was it was the song that, again, made me tear up when I listened to it. And that is something that I'm like, I'm listening to my emotions here because this is what works. But again, everything else other than Kiss of Life is, is, a, is you know, number two on here because they're all great. You know, maybe, you know, you should rank like. I'm trying to think if there was something I would put in the bottom half of this album but it's really tough because all the, tr- even Wallflower, if you asked me if I was in a drum mood, maybe I would pick Rhythm of the Heat or something like that. But mm-hmm. it's like, but yesterday when I, actually this morning when I voted, it was Wallflower. I didn't even have to think about it that much. Tom. I voted for Wallflower. Look at that. Really? No. No. <laughs> all right. All right. going to say I one that you, that you thought might be a grower. Maybe give it a week. <laughs> maybe you would vote for it. It's a grower, not a shower. Oh, um, yes. Rhythm of the Heat. 
just because of choice. Uh, my associations with Plays Live and just just from the build up that boom boom yeah boom boom and his singing the way it builds up into a frenzy until the very end like there's something about that track where it's i think if i were to introduce someone to older peter gabriel who only knows sledgehammer or kiss that frog or something <laughs> i'd probably sure. want to give him either this album or plays live so the first thing they could hear is rhythm of the heat yep yeah fair enough i could see that if it's like if if people think like, oh yeah, Peter Gabriel is that sledgehammer guy. If you like, go, oh no, he's more than that. And here's a track that shows that. You're right, Rhythm of the Heat does that. I would hope it wouldn't scare them away. <laughs> but it's but I get that you know, hey, if, if but if because if they listen to if they know Sledgehammer, Kiss That Frog, or something more mainstream, and they can give li- Rhythm of the Heat a chance, and they actually go. Oh, this is good. It's like then you are a Gabriel, Peter Gabriel fan. Yeah. It's like you can't only like those two songs and not like anything else that Peter Gabriel does. It's like dive in and you will be rewarded with this. So that's fantastic. So cool. Well, I think it's time now to have uh, be exposed to Tom's poll. This won't be my first time. <laughs> <laughs> Heyo. Heyo. Tom shows you his poll. Well, I was kind of surprised and not surprised by the poll. I was surprised by what made it higher up. Okay. I was not surprised by what track came in eighth place with zero <laughs> votes and zero percent. <laughs> wow. Okay. That uh, was Kiss of, of Life. life. <laughs> no, that was just that fraud. Oh, wait a second. <laughs> so, so, I mean, yeah. I, I am amazed that there was not one person who's like, Kiss of Life <laughs> is my favorite track on this album. But anyway. Coming in at number seven with eight votes, four percent of the vote, uh, lay your hands on me. All right, it's got to be something, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and I could see why you know, for for people, it is it is much more of a live track than a studio track, yeah. Sixth place with 15 votes and eight percent of the vote was the family and the fishing net. All right. Fair enough. So, yeah, I think yeah. Now people are just kind of like listing their second or third favorites. Yeah, uh, right. Number five, I have the touch with twenty mm. votes and ten percent. I would have I would have put that higher. So I'm surprised, a little surprised that it's in that ten percent range. But again, there's eight tracks on the album. So yeah. and then we get the top four. Number four was Rhythm of the Heat with twenty three votes. Okay, percentage twelve percent. Okay. And with only two more votes was Shock the Monkey at third place. So wow. maybe it's just one that people know, but I was kind of expecting some of the album cuts to maybe be higher than what yeah. was the radio hit. But then we got the top two. Okay, so what's votes. left? What's left? It's San Jacinto, San Jacinto and, and Wallflower. Wallflower. Okay. All right. Well, what would you think is number two? Ooh, I... I think Wallflower. You think Wallflower is number two? Yeah. I... No, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say San Jacinto is number two. All right, our guest is correct. Oh, hey. all right. <laughs> Wallflower is number two with 39 votes and 20 percent of the vote. Okay, that was a shocker for me, but only because of all the reasons I said before. Right. Uh, number one was San Jacinto. That I wasn't surprised at. That always no, seems to either. be 
the sleeper song that people love hearing in concert. Yeah. And, you know, I agree too. I love it too. That got 61 votes and 30% of the vote. Okay. Uh, but was, still number um, one with only 30%, only 30%, but it's, it's like besides the outlier of kiss of life, things were relatively in the teens to 20, 30% range. So it's not, there wasn't a runaway with over 50% on this album. So that's, no, uh, no. That's good. So that was, thank you everyone for voting. Yes. Um, continue to vote, continue to, well, not continue to vote in this poll, but vote <laughs> in the future polls and everything. We're always you can, you can still shout out your favorite song yes. as much as you like, just that we won't be listening. Yeah, exactly. We won't <laughs> be adding it to a master we'll total or something like that. So final thoughts on this album. Now that we've kind of gone over it, we've heard each other's comments, you know, anything that you want to kind of have listeners take away from your own kind of thoughts on this process, on this album. Well, as Adam is the guest, I'll let him finish up. So I'll go first uh, just to get mine out of the way. You can tell it's a, it's a good, great progression from his third album. The big difference in my mind and orally what my ears pick up is that the fourth album seems the word that comes to mind is warmer. It seems warmer than the third album because the third album can be very, uh, not in a bad way, but very sterile and very, maybe it's because of not using the symbols and some of the sounds that three uses that it's four becomes more, there's more warmth to it. I don't know how else to put that, but like, I feel like a more emotional tie with some of the out songs on the fourth album than I did on the third album. So while third was great, fourth definitely kicked it up a notch and to me resonates probably as one of his best albums, if not the best album. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's as a single album, I think it probably is the best one for me amongst the Peter Gabriel albums. Although talking about kind of songs before it's like, I think the third album is more in my head in my definition of song is more like song based than this one is. Whereas this is more kind of building music beds in, in the studio and coming up with lyrics on top of that. So you get these songs like, you know, San Jacinto or rhythm of the heat that are not classically traditionally arranged as songs in some ways, but are really songs and are Gabriel songs and they worked in that respect. So, so yeah, I love this album and, Again, you know, even Kiss of Life, I enjoy. It's just not, you know, not my, you know, I think there could have been a better choice there. But yeah, this album is one that now that I've kind of re-listened to it recently, I'm like, yeah, I kind of want to be reintroduced to these studio versions of these because I had heard the live versions as as a matter of routine for so long now. For me, the thing that sticks out is that it makes me feel like this is the album that has kind of solidified Peter Gabriel as an excellent singer, mm -hmm. uh, producer, and songwriter. Like, he's fully come into his own. It's not that the first three albums aren't excellent, and we don't already think Gabriel's an amazing artist, even from Genesis, of course. But this is where, for me, he's like at the top tier. He's at the top of his game. I know that his huge commercial success is coming next, right. but that's kind of even what I mean. Like now he's at the level where he's just achieved, like just really, really he's, he's achieved greatness in these three big tiers of music making. And this album delivers some of the like most unique and coolest 
music that I think was created during that time ever. And if you haven't seen it, I think it was, it's on YouTube now. It's about an hour and a half. There was a show called the South Bank or something where Peter Gabriel right. at the South Bank. And it's all about the making of this album. And, and you see him going out with a tape recorder to junkyard and capturing different sounds and smashing things and blowing into things and getting all these kinds of sounds and then going into the studio with these brand new computer machines that can mm -hmm. actually hold sounds on floppy disks. And you so can hip and so, so technologically advanced yeah. at the time. I think it was a fair light where yep. he was also de demonstrating. So it, it was three got him, I think started. And this album was where he kind of really decided to push himself and get all different types of sounds. He would record stuff off the TV. Like if he saw like a, a documentary on some tribe and something, he would put the, record up to the TV and just then find a rhythm in that and loop it and just add on layer by layer. And you can, you know, if you just listen to this album on headphones and just try to pick out all the different little bits of things that he's added, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. There's uh, on the reissue CD that I have, there's some of the archival photos or photos of like the, the tapes for this, for this album. And there's a box labeled like demos and there's a box labeled rough mixes. And I was like, I want to hear those. Oh, I want yeah. to hear what the early versions of this stuff was like, what Peter's Gabriel, what, what his demo was just sitting at the piano playing some of these things or with the band when they were just kind of rehearsing these things as a writing process. I would love to hear those type of things. Someday. Yeah. So, and I, I just have to add the co-producer of this album was a guy named David Lord, no relation. <laughs> so there is no conflict of interest with any of my comments uh, on this album. So no disclaimers needed here. Exactly. So I'll put it at the end at this point. So, so cool. Well, this has been tabletop Genesis. This has been great sitting around talking yeah. with friends about this album and everything. We hope you've enjoyed it. We will have more to come in the future, of course. And this is Mike Lord signing off. This is Tom Roche. This is Adam Cromwell. And we'll see you next time on Tabletop Genesis. Big clouds, steam rising, hissing stone on sweat lunch fire. Around me, buffalo rope, sage and bundle rub on skin. Outside cold air, stand, wait for rising sun. Red paint, eagle feathers, coyote calling, it has begun. Letting go
episode of Tabletop Genesis. Archived episodes can be found at tabletopgenesis.com, along with updates, polls, and various other podcast-related news. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to have the shows automatically downloaded to your computer when we post new episodes. To keep up with all the Tabletop Genesis activity, follow us on Twitter at Genesis Tabletop. You can like us on Facebook by searching for Tabletop Genesis, and you can email us directly at genesistabletop at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast, or send us questions we can address on future episodes.
So we're going to do what's called a clap test, and we're about 12 minutes into the Zencaster recording, just so I can mark that. And so I'm going to say three, two, one, clap, and then we'll do that. So three, two, one, clap. One more time. Three, two, one, clap. All right, so you're a little bit behind us, so but that'll help me sync up things when we do this. So, yeah, all right. you'll want to move him back like half a second. Yeah, exactly. Time. So, which really... <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep you going at, uh, at different times. Just do that in the middle of like minute 30 or so, and it'll right. be fine. So. Yeah. 